Welcome to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham. Now, the intention of this podcast is to talk to a cross-section of interesting and accomplished people to hear where they've come from, where they hope to go in life and what motivates them and what really makes them tick. Today, my guest is World Cup winner, broadcaster, father and philanthropist, Mr William John Heaton Greenwood. Welcome. Hi, Heaton. Yeah, Grandma's maiden name. We all got, uh, what's Emma? Hoyle, Tom's Howarth. Yeah, it goes back to the Lancastrian roots. Emma and Tom being your brother and sister. Emma, yes, Emma and Tom. Emma, so I'm the black sheep of the family. Mum, dad, brother, sister, all Cambridge. All highly educated, all highly intelligent. I went to Durham and get reminded Durham, of every Christmas. Durham, right? Anyway, it depends. It's all a scale, isn't it? So mm. um, if all your family have been to Cambridge and you don't go to Cambridge, it's a very sort of... Um, yeah, I'm bottom of the pile. <laughs> Now, that is absolutely not what I uh, have come to read and know about you because your life is um, already very accomplished and you're only 45 years old, 45 years young. Yeah. Um, let's cast our minds back to that uh, that joyous day in 1970-ish. Two. Two, in Lancashire. Yeah. And uh, your childhood growing up, what, what are your memories of it? Uh, sensational. Little village called Hurst Green. Um, about three quarters of a mile from a school that my mother and father both taught at, which was Stonyhurst College, run by Jesuit priests. Um, then in 1973, uh, Dad did his usual, got fed up with people, um, threw a sort of social hand grenade in there, jumped on a plane, and we went to Italy, where Dad was going to play rugby for Rugby Roma and then Algida. And so I spent five years. We went for one, we stayed for five. I grew up in Rome, um, and it was my first language. Uh, and then we came back in 78, and then, then my little village was everything. So they're all my muckers, and I only ever, ever wanted to play up front for Hurst Green Football Club. And three years ago, I got my wish and wore the number nine jersey on the back pitch at Hurst Green Football Club, which was just off Smithy Row, which is where we lived uh, for 20-odd years. And... Uh, it's amazing, you know, you can do all sorts of sport and all sorts of other things, but those little things in life were uh, an absolute joy. Scored from a corner, we lost 4-2, and uh, as memorable as any sporting event as I've been involved in. Well, that is some achievement. Uh, it, that must have been fantastic growing up in Rome, and actually then going back and playing for England against Italy must have stirred up a lot of emotion and memory as well. Yeah, it was slightly frustrating in 2000. I'd had a uh, bad year injuries. And so I was actually just... It was Stadio Flaminio. Uh, they now play at the Olympic Stadium. Stadio Flaminio is where uh, Italy joined the Six Nations in 2000. It was the Five Nations. And uh, England played there away, and I was only the water boy. But that was a stadium I'd grown up in when Dad was playing for Algida. Um, and all the photos on the wall at home were him with a map way before November, a huge tash. <laughs> um, I remember when he came to pick me up from boarding school at Sebra in about uh, 89... Um, this bloke, he'd, he'd always had a moustache like a walrus, like Craig Stadler. And uh, this bloke popped his head round the corner and bloke didn't have a moustache, so I looked, looked away <laughs> and they, they went, your dad's here? I went, no, 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 that's not my dad. My dad's got a massive tash. He's properly 1970s flares, old school. I was like, oh, 
there's your top lip. Never seen that. <laughs> um, so uh, it was disappointing not to be involved in that first one, but all my old dad's mates, uh, Rocco Caligiuri, uh, Giorgio, all those guys still came and just squeezed my cheek. And as I was known in the mid-70s, as Piccolino Willino, uh, Little Willie, um, was what they used to know me by. And uh, they were still kissing me both cheeks and squeezing the cheeks. And it was, it was lovely. And we go back um, to every... Italy England game and we'll be there again this year mum dad uh me my missus um my sister and brother we all head out there and it's part of the sort of biannual pilgrimage and uh I've got uh, yeah it, Rome Ro- we went for one stayed for five and if you ask my mother if she could go back to one point in time where the greenwoods were truly truly happy without a care in the world it'd be Rome between 73 and 78. Oh lovely well one question that I ask all our guests on this podcast is the one song that reminds them of their childhood it's all part of the End the Silence campaign for Hope and Homes for Children and it's all about the music that you most associate with those happy memories and I assume that that may be something that you used to play to yourselves in Italy. Uh, No Uh, we weren't a musical family at all um, but uh, if I had to go something, we had, I'm old enough to have the old eight stack, so before tapes, and mum liked uh, Wings. So that was the band that had, that was Paul McCartney's band, like High Flying Birds is Noel Gallagher. Yeah. You sort of associate uh, Noel Gallagher with Oasis. Mm-hmm. You sort of associate McCartney with the Beatles, but his spin-off band... Uh, was Wings, and you would know, for example, the Bond theme tune, Live and Let Die, mm-hmm. that one, and um, those would be the tunes that I grew up But, um, yeah, we weren't... We, we have no... My sister sang a little bit, but music doesn't play a big role in our life until um, my, until Caro appeared, my wife, who is just knows every lyric to every song... Mm-hmm. Um, that's ever, ever been written. And so since then, music's played a much bigger... My son, Rocco's always singing along. Um, But me, music was not something... I mean, I go back to University 91 to 94 at Durham and there are those classic songs that come on. You go, oh, yeah, I remember Rixies and Clute, those nightclub songs. Um, But in my junior years, uh, it was just sport, just watching devouring anything. Channel 4 appeared in 1982-83, American football, choose a team, Washington Redskins. Absolutely anything and everything was what I did. Music, yeah, I missed that. What what kind of kid were you? Were you confident? No. Were you outgoing? Were you shy? uh, Very shy. Wouldn't say boo to a goose. Um, Hid if guests came round, hid under the bed. Didn't want to meet them. Um, And then... uh, Dad would slowly educate me in terms of um, handshakes, eye contact, um, those sorts of things that I now, when we do School of Hard Knocks, they're sort of the first things I teach people. And any team I'm involved in now, it's all about communication. So it's sort of ironic that I'm working in, in an industry with the newspaper and the TV and the radio, which is all about communication. Mm. But as a child, um, I was just happy with Adam Hayes, Paul Hayes, Simon Taylor, Ian Barton, Andy Olden, the Youngs on the back pitch of her screen, just booting a ball around, living in a tracksuit, mum shouting, it's tea time, coming in, grabbing a ham and cheese sandwich, occasionally playing the ZX Spectrum, Daily Thompson. <laughs> 45 degrees, you want it for the javelin. Good 
finger strength. Oh, away we go. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, idyllic times. And I always threaten uh, Caro that I'd, it's never going to happen. But um, if I went back to Ribble Valley in 10 years' time and lived the last 20 years in my old village, I know you're not supposed to look backwards, but they were proper happy times. That's great. Well, it, that actually leads me on quite nicely to my next regular question, which is, it's the advice you would give to your younger self. Would you encourage yourself to, to be more outgoing or is that just something that has to grow naturally and organically? I think I'm learning that as a, as a parent of uh, three very different children. Um, Archie, my eldest, would be very much like me and sometimes I've had to bite my tongue when he's hidden away or didn't want to meet people um, because I've got that sort of National Lampoon's animal house with the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other and just going... Shout at him, tell him he's got to go meet them. No, don't. He's got to find it in his own time. And um, I think with with the absolute yin and yang that my wife are in terms of um, her emotional and pastoral care of our children and my original Victorian Lancastrian parent parenting style, they've sort of slowly morphed a little bit. Cara hasn't come as far as, as I've shifted and I begin to understand that it's not about them living up to my expectations it's about them being happy and so um archie's slowly coming out of his of his shell and it's a joy to watch and it's been all due to sort of caro's nurturing mm. now, your life it's fair to say has been something of a roller coaster you've had massive highs massive elation and also some very challenging and tragic lows and um i think everyone perhaps, does though well i I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. But but, but it's punk your life has been punctuated by these key events, hasn't it? I mean, mm. the first one being back in 97 for the Lions Tour where you had a near-death experience yourself. Yeah. You were unconscious for a number of minutes and you swallowed your tongue. Yeah. Do you remember anything of that? So the amazing thing about that was when I came <laughs> back, everyone was like, wow, he's so brave, he's so tough, look at that tough guy. He's back out on the field. It's very easy to come back from something you don't remember. So no recollection of it whatsoever. Um, we played the evening game. I remember before the match, warming up, mum and dad had just flown over from England. It was their first day out there. The next thing I remember is being at uh, Kings Park on the Saturday and uh, Jerry dropping the goal to win the series. There's this sort of 72-hour blank in the middle where I was clearly conscious for the vast majority of it but just hasn't uh, registered in terms of the grey cells acknowledging what was going on um so coming back from that actually was was relatively easy compared to some of the shoulder issues i've had down the years and people would have knees or achilles they're the tough ones because you remember your shoulder pointing in the wrong direction and, and it really hurting those are the sorts of things that you, you, you psychology you've got to get over and as they say get back on the horse as quickly as possible but the the the, the lion's head accident um is one of those things that I'm associated with. And on the video, uh, the Lions video, it's uh, the words, William, William, what have you done? Mum's words, and now that sounds all very serious, but basically whenever I'm remotely drunk and do something stupid, all the lads go, William, William, what have you done? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's perhaps a coping mechanism to to sideline it in your own mind, but the fact is you did nearly die. But if you and don't remember... Yeah, but the fact is you had to deal with it. You had to process this with your wife and mother. So that... Well, Cara was watching it at home 
And your mum was there. Your mum yeah, was... mum was mum was there. So she had. It's the parents that have the tough time. Me and Carol were in the very early days, and I think she was at a dinner party or out with her mates in Leicester. And he said, uh, "Will's down." And he went, "He's always down. He's a bit of a hypochondriac." Uh, and then I spoke to him. Spoke to her that night from the Bloemfontein Hospital. It's very strange when you're an uncapped player, um, and all this has sort of been recounted from Dad uh, being alongside me. Um, to be in the back of the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And my dad had always said, it's it's completely ridiculous thing to say in the modern era when you worry about HIAs and head injuries. In the old days, you had 21 days if you had a bang on the head and no one knew anything about head injuries in those days. It was a a niggle and a pain and you just missed rugby. They didn't understand uh, the implications of taking a really bad knock, um, how it jars the brain. And so Dad had always said to me, never leave the field with concussion because if you admit to concussion, you miss for 21 days. Mm. So you don't want to miss any rugby. So you just go, no, it's, oh, my hamstring's a bit tight. Or you pretend and two days later you go, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And so I was in the back of the, the ambulance going to the, the hospital. Dad always says, this story says, this will be the one he'll sort of take to his grave and he doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. So I'm there uh, just flat out on the gurney back of the ambulance and halfway there I just sit up in the back of the ambulance and go dad dad tell him it's my hamstring and straight back out again so somewhere wow you'd learn not to go so it's it's uh those are are most of the stories that happened to me in that 72 hours have been retold to me and uh and people go stop being so self-deprecating and go you know it was amazing to come back but I promise you if you have absolutely no idea of of an event there is no fear factor about what it holds and what could hold in the future. So you just put your boots back on and run around again. Mm. This is just as well, isn't it? Um, now, you have been with your gorgeous wife, Caro, as you've touched on for an, a long, long time, but you actually embarked on married life under very tragic circumstances. You endured something that no parent should have to in losing your first child, little Freddie, back mm. in 2002. Yeah. Um, he, he came... At 22 weeks, came premature and only lived for 45 minutes. Um, how on earth did you even begin to kind of cope with that as a couple? Uh, so if you go, if you fast forward to now um, and realise in a perverse way the immense amount of good um, that has come out of it, you can begin to um, compute those sort of um, 15 years. So I'm doing the Arctic for Mark Johnson, there's the doctor who's responsible. So the same thing was happening to Archie in the World Cup in 03, so I flew home. But Mark, I'm doing the Arctic Forward, did the Kilimanjaro. Uh, Caro hosts uh, the Bourne charity event every couple of years. Um, we're putting a huge amount of our time into raising funds to help research premature birth, which uh, the stats are staggering in terms of the long-term implications of the disabilities and uh, problems that can arise from a baby coming out too soon so um you fast forward and it's it's amazing and in weird enough it's a, a source of great joy to us that we can use our position to help you go back to uh 19th september and um, sort of go back a week before and i was playing for quinn's and got a phone call carol's in norfolk with her mum and she goes greens i think i think you need to come come down tonight and you sort of think about the great regrets and I just went ah, just Caro being Caro so I stayed and had a few beers it was Dave Slemon 
Uh, I remember so clearly, so little you do remember about so many really important things. And then remember I went out with Dave Slemon on the King's Road. We had a few beers and I sort of woke up and thought, I'm pretty sure Cara said there was a problem last night. So I'd, the first bad tick in the box goes to me not realising total naive young man. I think most men are about how dangerous labour really, truly is. the most dangerous thing you ever do in your life. Um, and so I jumped in the car, went down to King's Lynn. Car had been... Uh, had a procedure taken place at King's Lynn, which we still look back on now and go, did that? Did that irritate things? You, I mean, you can't live in that sort of mindset, but you just... We'd look back and go, no, man, that was a bad idea going to that hospital. We should have just got back to London. Um, anyway, we go back to London and uh, you sort of realise it's happening, but it doesn't sink in. Um, and the amazing thing in about a 22-week-old baby is it goes back to ignorance again. I'm just expecting uh, a sort of congealed mess. I didn't expect any sort of formation at 22 weeks. I was crap at biology. I got a C. I didn't listen. Uh, and out comes this absolutely perfect baby. It's just a little small, but it's like beautifully and perfectly formed. And uh, lies with Cara for about 45 minutes uh, and then sort of breathes its last breath and then you go, Christ, what happens now? Um, Caro and I then had to go through the process of letting people know, of leaving the hospital, of um, sorting a funeral out, crematorium, um, and carrying a little coffin. And you always remember that I always had a crematorium just outside King's Lynn and we took Freddie down, we put, uh, planted a little crabapple tree in Granny's house in Norfolk, um, which was a couple of weeks later. Um, and I always remember David Hartwright, He's a surgeon now, really eminent hand surgeon. He's come down and wakes of strange things. Even um, now you sort of wonder that well, how anyone smiles, but actually it's really important to smile. And um, He always tells this story about, yes, he was, he was doing his rounds and uh, this old lady, he's called David Hartwright, he said, oh, yes, I had a wonderful man today, Mr Halfwit. Um, so out of this weird wake, uh, we always talk about Mr Halfwit, who's now one of the finest hand surgeons <laughs> on the planet. Um, you then head back to London and uh, close. I mean, I think the, the four weddings and the funeral, I always get misquoted, but um, stop all the clocks, silence all the pianos mm. or silence all the dogs. Uh, he was my north, my south, my east, my west. That's sort of what Freddie was to us at that time. And you mm. didn't realise or didn't think there was any way out of this, this hole. Um, and people say some enormously crass things, but you understand with time that they're actually just trying to help. Um, Actually saying nothing is the best thing and just being there for people to release whatever it is um, they want to release. And then um, we uh, thought, so right, we went again with Arch um, and then I get the phone call during the World Cup. So, um, to, Just to explain to, to listeners, um, Caro had a sort of weakness, a membrane weakness, which needed... A stitch, which is what Mark Johnson yeah. at the Chelsea and Westminster was able to identify, and something as simple as a stitch would be enough to prevent premature labour. Yeah, so one stitch, uh, a cervical suture, would be its technical term. And the amazing thing is the amount of stitches we have. Oh, I, I mean, I didn't have a huge amount of stitches, but enough to oh, put 
cuts together on the top of eyebrows and across foreheads um and literally one stitch would uh, would suffice for those but the problem is it comes down to cost and monitoring and who's at risk who isn't at risk and um then there's a combination of drugs that can help slow down the onset of labor i've got to be very careful about how deep i go here in terms of medical stuff before i get myself on on, on in areas which i don't know enough about all i do know and this is is they're still using drugs for for ladies who go into preterm labor that they were using um when we won the world cup and they go well that's not too bad 14 years ago no 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 that's the wrong world cup since 1966 they're still using the same drugs there's been no development uh in terms of what they can give to women who uh way before their time suddenly want to um bring their their baby out uh so uh, mark's uh mark johnson is is developing some new ones we've gone to clinical trial and fingers crossed we can make some progress on that because uh he is a saint uh he's an absolute miracle worker and when he says jump i say how high um i don't really want to go to north pole he probably won't listen to this um but the phone rang and when he comes up you sort of know what trip are we doing next so i'm leading a, a group of 10 to north pole in april and uh yeah th there's no doubt in my mind that if we had not or if caro hadn't stumbled across mark johnson on the josephine barnes ward um back in the early in the early millennium then i wouldn't have any kids so then everything gets put put into context. Whatever it needs to do for that fella, Caro and I will just um, jump on the horse and go. And for anyone listening who wants to know more about his work, where can they find it? Has Bourne got a website they can look at? Uh, yeah, so uh, in my beautiful prepared way, uh, it's B-O-R-N-E is is the registered charity. And um, if you search for Bourne, the, the link pops up pretty clearly. Brilliant. Brilliant. And as you say, you alluded to it then, uh, the World Cup, you know, just a year later, here you are on top of the world, the only England rugby men's rugby team yes. to have achieved that. Um, and suddenly your world has changed yet again and presumably for the better and it's kind of set you on a, a totally different trajectory. Yeah, so people say, oh, it's, you've had more wrinkles and uh, it's just wisdom and age or you're... Uh, you're emotionally disconnecting from what it did, but weirdly enough, I, I've got I've come around to the conclusion, and uh, there's this great photo uh, where Johnny's about to kick the goal or the drop goal. So the ball, his foot is about to strike the ball, and um, I genuinely have come to the view that it actually didn't matter if it went over or not. And people go, "What are you on about?" It says because. Life's about making memories, about making friends and about having experiences. And I think the most special thing about that was uh, a team that were ranked nine in the world who were labelled as chokers and no-hopers had taken total control of their own destiny with this sort of um, wonderful, um, wonderfully wacky but innovative leader in terms of Clive Woodward and put ourselves in a position to be in control of your own destiny. And if you're telling your kids, you're talking about what's the one bit of advice you'd give to yourself if you're young or you'd give to Archie and Matilda and Rocco, I'd say whatever you do, take control of your own destiny and make decisions, go for it. 
be afraid. Don't don't fear failure. You know, you only stop. You don't get chances when you stop taking them. Um, and all these sort of quotes you may have heard. And so, um, it, it, it was clearly amazing. But what I remember about that group were winning away in New Zealand in the summer. You know, going to Ireland, were needing a Grand Slam, and they had a Grand Slam, and winning well after losing sort of two or three in the build-up to that. Uh, and Peniel Park and the funny stories and the, and the chat and the banter and rooming with Mike Tyndall and him not telling me he had a dog. And it wasn't really a dog, it was a horse um, <laughs> that his missus had given him. Uh, and I walk in and, and it's like, there's a horse on my bed. <laughs> well, no, it's our dog, Misty, I think it was called. I said, and will it eat, I don't mind, Tins, it can share our room, but will it eat my shoes? No, 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 Greens, it doesn't eat my shoes. The next thing I know, it's shat my <laughs> full Oliver Sweeney's shoe on my bed that it's chewed. I'm like, he still owes me a chuffing pair of shoes. It's still a joke about it. So, you know, I, I get it, and it, the NBE was amazing, and Trafalgar Square, and meeting the Queen, mega, mega, mega. But uh, the memories are of being involved in a team wanting to do something special and different, and going for it. And that's what I remember. Oh, the lasting memory and the legacy is that you got your hands on the trophy and, and that has clearly changed the course of your life. But um, you talked about Matilda briefly there. She's your middle child. Um, yeah. you, you, she represents a whole different challenge to you with your life. She was diagnosed as autistic. Yeah. Um, having a spiky profile, can you explain to us what that is? Um, so the main thing, it sounds like she's being naughty. She has sort of, PDA, which is pathological demand avoidance. So the sort of the tone and the language uh, and the, the vocabulary used with her has to be very carefully constructed and, and thought about everything. And I'm a complete time freak and uh, square off my desk and let's go and let's be early. And has to be totally um, reformed in terms of the sentence structure and has to be Matilda... We need to be ready to leave in about 10 minutes. Are you ready with that? Are you happy with that? So it sounds like you're pandering to a child and and that's one of the things. So if I then use that as a sort of opening brush stroke, the, the, the main thing is we've learned is you, if you've met one autistic child, you've met one autistic child. So you can't blanket them all together mm. and treat them all in, in the same way. It's a bell curve. It's a distribution curve. And... What, we don't use the word normal anymore. It's neurotypical. The neurotypical live in the sort of centre of the bell curve and without going into mathematics, that's where the vast majority of the people live. Then that tails off and it goes out into the tails either side and you're then you're then living in the extremities of, what, uh, of the distribution in terms of how you're wired. And Matilda's one of those and one of those many children that, that, that lives out there on the extremities, which is therefore not viewed, and I can use the word normal then, by other kids who don't understand that. So mm. it's very difficult for the children in and around her. Um, it has totally shaped us. There was a time, uh, certainly two years ago, where just totally at wit's end. Didn't know what to do. No relationship with my daughter. Um, she would only commute to Caro. Caro was the key to her world. And then slowly but surely through education, through Caro going to so many courses, um, spending so much time studying, speaking, asking, talking finding information out long hours into the night that she's helped educate me, which has allowed us to live and handle with Matilda. But it doesn't change. It doesn't go away. And um, it would have involved a, a 
pretty rubbish half hour last night when you're just trying to get her to sit down sort of for half an half a minute, never mind half an hour, just to attempt a little bit of homework, but gone out the window, okay, we leave it, and it might take then two or three days for that to to happen again. So um I think where we're at a stage are is I genuinely feel we've come through the darkest part of it in terms of a family. Matilda will always live with it, and it's us trying to facilitate as uh, a, a life for her that will be a happy one. Uh, I suspect that may involve staying very close to us for a very, very long period of time, but if that's what it is, then, then that's what it is, and the boys have begun to understand that, Archie and Rocco, and... Uh, we love her with all our heart, Matilda, and we, we all uh, find a way to, to live together in as happy a way as possible. But it's it's really, really difficult living with an autistic child. Mm. When did you sort of first realise that the pieces didn't quite fit for her in the same way as, say, Archie? Because he, he was the only one that you could really compare her to at the time. Yeah. Um, good question. I mean, how old is Matilda now? She was born in April 2006. Um, she's 11 and a half when she was sort of six or seven. Mm. Um, and some and she was diagnosed at seven, wasn't she? Yeah, some teachers at some of the schools she was involved in, you know, you sort of look back at it and go, what, really? But they didn't understand, and it's so... You know, Asperger's and autism, these sorts of words that we are beginning to view as normal didn't enter the English language until the 30s and mm. 40s. It just didn't exist. Um, so there's part of me that goes... Uh, Again, if Matilda was born in the 18th century, um, she'd be in a lunatic asylum. Mm. That's just what happened. Um, you'd have just been put away and forgotten about. You, it's not meant to be... You know, she'd, be she'd be the mad woman who lives at the top of the house, that you'd just keep away from everyone uh, and um, brush under the carpet. Mm. The beauty of it now, with everyone understanding and mental health, is uh, it's it's being much more brought out into the domain, the, the open world, to discuss, to help, uh, to support. And she's at a little school called Claire's Court now, and uh, Mrs Sheffield uh, and Leanne Barlow and, and the girls and the ladies there, they are proper heroes. And, you know, you sometimes get fated for sport. And I've talked about Mark Johnson, hero, Leanne Barlow, Mrs Sheffield, hero, hero. Carol Greenwood, hero. Um, you, 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 we sometimes make heroes out of the wrong people. And uh, I, I know I'm surrounded by people who have done and will do so much good for this planet. Mm. How does her? How does it sort of manifest itself? What's her behaviour patterns? Or what are the patterns? Is it all atypical? Uh, well, we don't go anywhere where there's crowds um, anymore or noise. Um you know, I always thought it was, come on, Matilda, sit at the table and she'd be under the table with headphones on. Uh, and now it's just that she just goes into her world. She loves swimming. I couldn't work out why she loves swimming. She loves playing, I mean, hours and hours and hours under the water. Literally, if you go to the swimming pool um, by the steps, she'd just lower herself down and hold onto the steps and go under the water. She can hold her breath. It's extraordinary. It always reminds you of the Jean Reno film. Um, they should, that, when they jump in to the water in DJ to compete how long they can spend under the water. That, if it was an Olympic sport, Matilda would be a gold medalist. Um, 
and we couldn't work it out what it was and it's because no one's talking to her and there's mm. just sort of that weird noise silence at the bottom of the swimming pool and under the water um so that's um how it manifests itself uh we have less instances now but extraordinary meltdowns i think would be the the word that most people would associate with a screaming child uh, and I think in the early days it's so difficult because you just everyone's looking at you and you're going mm. and there's nothing you can do about it and you sort of try you'd actually make it worse by um, come on Matilda and then she gets stressed about it all so now it's one of those ones where you you, you sort of smother people in there smother people with smiles so when she has meltdowns and people have got that judgmental look and perhaps haven't had a, any episodes of 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 this sort of health problems in their own family, it's sort of more an ignorance, and so you just turn and smile at them, and they, and with that you diffuse it. It doesn't matter, Matilda. You just play out whatever you've got to do. You just play it out, and how much noise you want to make, how much you want to scream, you scream. Um, but you know, and this sounds very strange then to say, but we're lucky because she's a relatively high performing. Um, autistic child. We managed to keep her in mainstream school, not just because we want to get her to do GCSEs, but we want to keep a, a collective group, a social group that she can attach herself to because it becomes a very lonely world for for autistic children. Um, and, and that's sort of what we're trying to do, but she has a teacher's assistant, Mrs Sheffield, who's with her every minute of every day at school trying to um, uh, translate what on earth the teachers are saying at the front on the board. So um, yeah, it's 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 been another challenge. But look, I go back to the whole point, and one of the things I say to 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 all the kids I coach on School of Hard Knocks, or all the kids who ask me about things that I'm involved in, a sort of teacher's assistant style myself, is two things: don't judge a book by its cover, mm. and don't look over a garden fence in life. It ain't the grass ain't ever greener mm. on the other side. Looking forward, if you can, with her future, do you worry about her? Do you worry how things are going to develop? Yeah, look, I think so because I mean, the classic thing in life is for for a little girl is to 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 meet a partner um, and to get married um, and to have a happy life surrounded by friends and family, and we worry that how is that going to be possible? Mm. Um, but um, Caro. And I now we work really hard to 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 cut potential issues off at the past, but at the same stage, to try and just take every day as it comes. And the first most important text of the day, whoever's done the school doing the school run, so Kara has to get out of the house at half seven in the morning with Rocco. Rocco doesn't have to be at school till twenty past eight, but if Kara's in the house, then the extreme separation anxiety that she has with her mother means she won't go to school. So we've worked out a little routine. Rocco gets up like a little trooper that he is, gets up early, puts his school clothes on early, they get out of the house and they, and they go close to the school and they read books in the car so that she's out of the house. Then uh, I do the school run um, as often as I can and the text to Carol, she's in. I mean, that's, that, you know, people can, what, you text your wife to say your daughter's in at school? Yes, that is number one, done. Then Mrs Sheffield sends out an email at three o'clock every day. So there'll be one on my phone waiting for me now, um, which will say she's had a good day, um, this is what she's done, or she hasn't, and can you come in? 
Um, and so it's just staging posts mm. each day and we celebrate the good days uh, and we know the bad days are just around the corner but we're ready for them and um, we don't fear them as as much as we did. Mm. And it sounds like you've got to that point through a lot of research and, as you say, a lot of reading by, by both yourself and Caro. You, you, you mentioned... No, it's Caro, it's Caro, Caro, Caro. I mean, well, look, I, she educates me. Mm. I, I, you know, but you've been very receptive luck- to it. Yeah, I'm very lucky uh, to... to She's um, after Carrie used to work uh, in fashion, and then after Freddie happened, and then Archie came along. It was tough. We sort of decided that Carrie would 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 be be the homemaker, be the mother, and she's extraordinary uh, at that. And I, you know, you don't want to pigeonhole. And I sort of go out and uh, I'm in charge of finances, and you know, we joke. I'm in charge of finance. She's in charge of mergers and acquisitions and homes. <laughs> um, but what she's done. Is, is spectacular. I mean, truly, truly spectacular, the amount of work. She, but she goes, Queens, I've, I've got no choice. We have no choice. Mm. Um, um, I I have to be there for Matilda. So we do realise we're extraordinarily lucky. And, you know, without being vulgar about it, at times we've just, we've thrown cash at it. Mm. Who can we see? How can we get there? How can we help her? And... Uh, you hear heartbreaking stories uh, of long queues and uh, waiting times in, in this perspective. So in amongst it all, yes, it's tough, but we're, we're very lucky to be in the situation we've sort of created for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Talking of that situation that you've created yourself, you've had to reinvent yourself. How difficult was it to do that after such a successful career in rugby to actually say, hang up your boots who am I, where do I belong, and where do I start forging a new career? Because that can't be easy when actually all you focused on until that point is is pulling on your jersey and, and doing a great job for club and country. Yeah, so I, again, you go back to time of birth, 1972, which means when rugby went professional in 1996, I was already 24 which means I've been to university, which I know isn't the be-all and end-all, but it was a, it was a good route to market in terms of the work I wanted to do. I worked for Midland Global Markets, which was bought by HSBC. I was a foreign exchange trader. Uh, had a great time in the city. I saw Rizzo, Samo, uh, Dagsy, uh, all the BTP boys, uh, which is an Italian government bond in the old days, all the Bund boys from the life floor uh, a couple of weeks ago. They're still great pals of mine. Um so I had the, that experience of the 5.30 alarm call, getting up, going to work in the city. And then suddenly I had the opportunity for rugby to do it as a, as a profession. I almost didn't want to leave what I had. So me and my dad sort of came up with this plan that I'd leave uh, the city in 1996 on July the 1st. And if I didn't play for England within two years, I'd go back to work for HSBC. So that was a challenge to understand that uh, the finances weren't there, the money wasn't there. So you got to commit wholeheartedly to it. To don't be the bloke at the end of the bar. That's what we said. Don't be the bloke at the end of the bar that says, I could have played pro rugby. Go find out and then you'll know and then you can go back and do what you're good at or you can continue and be successful uh, on the rugby field. So uh, when I finished, the first thought was to go back into the city, but the financial crisis was taking place and it just didn't seem like a good place to go into work. I'd started to uh, get involved in the media side and a wonderful man, Martin Turner, had given me a host of opportunities um, to keep coming back to Sky and be involved in the in the broadcast side. Uh, I'd got fed up with the news of the world 
printing what they thought I'd said, but clearly hadn't said in my ghosted column. I had a massive argument with my pal, Nick Keller, and he says, I'm bored of this Greens, you ring me, he's my agent and, and, and great mate, bored of this Greens, you ring me up every Monday and say, um, they've, they've jumbled up your words. So you've got two options, um, either take the money and keep doing a ghosted column and ignore it, it's chip paper tomorrow, or write your own. I went, what do you mean write your own? No one writes their own. He says, well, start writing your own. You know, you, you're educated, just scribble away. So I uh, got an opportunity with The Telegraph, and it's probably something I'm as proud of in terms of my career, that ability to have written over a million words for The Telegraph. Uh, it's 50-ish articles a year. Um, I've been doing it 12 years. There tend to be about 1,500 words a piece. You start doing the numbers on that, and actually when you start a piece of 1,500 words, because I've got such verbal diarrhoea when I'm typing away, each piece tends to start at about three and a half thousand. I have to cut it back. So if I work out the actual amount of words I've written, it's, it's, for someone who was terrified of an English essay at school, um, it's, it's great to be on the touchline for the third test this summer uh, with the Lions alongside my great pal Scott Quinnell uh, and to be given the opportunity to be involved in the broadcasting of a Lions series in New Zealand and the School of Hard Knocks programme with Sky for the last 10 years are uh, things that I'm equally proud of in terms of a ranking system of uh, youth achievements, uh, university work, uh, city job, uh, rugby. Um, yeah, it's um, just try and... Every time I try and do something, just try and be the best at it mm. kind of can. I mean, people hate that because I'm competitive, but I, I, you know, I don't think the, people hate competition. I don't think. I think people admire it, and they yeah. probably they don't like it when I'm playing cards. Well, like, maybe at, not at Christmas, and I'm <laughs> scoring. Cheating. No, oh god. Okay, good, no, good, no, good, no, good. No, no. Cheating doesn't sit well with you. I know. No. I do know that much. But but it does all sound like things. Uh, you know, you have a lot of structure, and you talked about being in charge of your own destiny. Do you feel also that this that writing is a is a kind of therapy for you as well? Do you do you feel that it's cathartic in a way? Like I love, I go back to, I think one of your first questions was, you know, your childhood, what do you remember about that? Just love sport. Um, I love sport. I would watch snails race and, and cheer them. Um, you know, I'm just, it's coming up to the darts. And way, 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 way before Sky took it over, you know, Sid Waddell was my hero. Uh, he was at Cambridge with my old man. Um, he was an absolute ledge, uh, a total inspiration. I fail miserably to ever try and emulate any of his words, but if Elvis walked in here now and ordered fish and chips, no-one would notice. I mean, who comes up with lines like that? <laughs> Especially when you talk about darts. You know, it's incredible how he's popularised this sort of pub sport into something quite spectacular. Um, and so the writing allows me to be an anorak, and I watch so many games of rugby. It drives Caro insane. But in order to fulfil one of my sort of promises to myself, which then becomes a promise to other players, because I've been in the situation where form has been rubbish, uh, you've been dropped, you've been booted out of another club, all this sort of stuff happened to me as a player. Um, and I could sort of understand the articles being written about it, but my mum, man, she read every word and took everything so personally and you could see the worry on her face when I had an injury or wasn't selecting the first team. So I watch all those games so that when I write my pieces, and I don't want this to sound any in any way impolitically correct, it's just, it's just how I've seen it. I use the mum test. 
So would I, when I'm writing away and I press send and it goes to the Telegraph and then it appears in a paper on a Saturday, or I sit in the studio at Sky and Alex Payne says, you know, how do you think he played? Um, the mum test is, would I write or would I say what I'm about to do if the mother of the player was sat next to me right now? And if the mother of the player was sat next to me right now and I would still say it, then that is the right side of the line. Uh, in turn. And that doesn't mean not saying things that need saying. It's by doing the research and the work and the watching and the time, you put yourself in a position to be able to explain to a mother why their son should not play for England this week. And that's a pretty punchy statement to have to make. But if you can break the game down to... Uh, Mrs Smith at the moment you, your lad's just dropping off his left hand passes which is limiting the width the team can have you limit the team the width can have then we become much easier to defend against and we're not so how his how their son how her son fits a role in that team um, uh, and that's what the the sort of the microphone and the and I'd say the pen but you don't write any the tap of the keyboard allows me to do but it's mm. something that is vitally important in terms of my style. It's also about being kind, though, isn't it? I mean, kindness is a pretty underestimated, undervalued yeah. trait. My mum always says there's no more important trait out there than kindness. Um, you know, you can you can deliver constructive criticism, yeah. but still kind of coat it in kindness. Yeah, look, I think so. Uh, although my missus calls it a shit sandwich. <laughs> um, which is, you're, you're nice, you'd be really nice at the start, you drive the knife in, and then you'd be really nice at the end. Um, she, you know... Uh, yeah, Cara puts him much better than I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another regular question on the podcast is, what keeps you up at night? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I look, I think one of the questions you talk about is wonderfully structured. Uh, actually, I was trying to... Uh, sometimes it seems as though I would have an extraordinarily perfect structure, but the way that journalism works and the way that television works is I tend to be on duty at weekends when all my mates are off. Mm. Um, so actually, uh, why do I keep so busy? Because Mondays and Tuesdays, you know, all my mates are at work and then I go to work at the weekends. Um, so I have to try and fill my time. I'm a gregarious person. I don't... The, the, the shy kid that we talked about at the top of the show, at uh, the top of the chat, was um, what I used to be. Now I need to be around people. I need things to be happening. So the reason I keep so busy is I just don't like being on my own. Mm. It freaks me out. Uh, I need to be around people. And if that means going to a CrossFit club and beasting myself with 10 others, then right, that's what it is. If that's why I'm at Maidenhead Rugby Club now and driving the lads forward and we've got promotion last year and who knows where we might go, that's what it is. Why am I at Wellington College being a teacher's assistant uh, and teaching quadratic equations and tree diagrams? Uh, as a 13, volunteer. As a volunteer, because uh, the time, the hours that I work mean that my mates aren't on off when I'm off, therefore fill time, do something. And do you feel a pressure to earn money? Because, you know, you have talked about throwing money at the situation when there are yeah. problems and, you know, you're not a footballer, you don't have a bottomless pit from your... your... I would have been a 
bloody good goalkeeper. <laughs> don't you, you d- listen. Oh, sure Papa, Papa Greenwood said, don't be the guy at the end of the bar. Yeah. I could have played for England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did play for England, just yeah. not perhaps in the mo- most lucrative sport. Yeah. But, I mean, do, do you worry about always being able to, to fund all the best treatment for Matilda, to the best schooling for Archie and Rocco? Or, or do you just think that that will come because you are resourceful and you do always keep yourself so busy? Um, all right. And people say, well, it's it's easy to say these sorts of comments if you're doing okay. And, and I totally understand, and I don't want this sentence to be sort of misconstrued, but um, I have... Um, I think hugely changed over the past three or four years um, in terms of the person that I am. And the, the sort of way I think we're speaking to Cara about it within the last 24 hours, we said, you know what, if it's all went, yeah, if it's suddenly skin to none, don't worry, we'd be all right. Uh, and I think when you first come out of the sport and the, and that sort of glorious era of English rugby and achievement and success, there's a... a a self-imposed pressure you put on yourself to keep there, keep there, keep there, and it's, it's so draining. Um, and actually, with time, um, closing the door at night at home and seeing three happy kids and the missus is where we're at now. So I think if we'd done this podcast five years ago, the answer would have been very different to the one it is now. Five years ago answer would have been, I've got to get out there, the numbers have got to grow, it's got to be growth, got to be growth, got to be growth, don't go backwards. Why am I, why am I going backwards? Agent, what's going on? Why is there no work? What am I doing? What can I do? What do I need to do? Who do I need to see? Uh, where am I speaking tonight? What event am I doing? Why aren't I getting events to... He's almost ringing me going, why aren't you ringing me anymore? I'm mm-hmm. going, well, I'm pretty happy uh, now. Um, so what's changed? We joke about it and... and uh, my affair that I'm having is with Maiden Ed Rugby Club, you know, on a Tuesday and Thursday night, that's where I am. Mm. Um, get there early, 7 o'clock, they're my sort of next troop of lads, um, and that's what I love doing. I have a pint and a bag of chips after training, get home. Um, and so that's... I've, I've found a huge amount of fulfilment, and it was a completely naive existence, and I look back on it and go, very shallow existence. Um which was totally driven by, and not ashamed to say, totally driven by how much can I earn? Mm. Uh, what what can I do to genuinely uh, go and we'll be all right? Because um, follow your passion, as Kara says. Follow mm. your passion. You've got to do what makes you happy. And I've shifted away from doing things that I felt were right in terms of uh, um, irrational expectancies. Um, to doing things that genuinely put a smile on my face. When uh, please, when we scored an 84th-minute winner against Bracknell away on Saturday, <laughs> I'm telling you now, I jumped up and down more than I did when Johnny Wilkinson scored Stop that. Stop it. Because it's in the moment. It's yeah. now, and that's the past. So what makes me happy now? Mm. Um, who was I with? A young lad at school and... Uh, a young girl who who's an Italian girl at school, and and we cracked a question yesterday. We saw her smile. I get it. I was like, that's happiness. Uh, helping someone uh, do something they couldn't do 15 minutes uh, before, and that's sort of what makes me tick. And that's now why I'm going to North Pole, and that sort of stuff. But I don't want people to think. Um, 
oh, look at him, he's a sort of philanthropist, do-gooder, that sort of stuff. He's come from sort of a torment to a degree of self-imposed pressure uh, and then come out the other side to realise... Um, but I, exactly, you've put, you've put it way better than I ever could put it. you just got to be kind. And I, I, I don't think... Uh, I would say post-rugby, so I retired in 06 to 13, 2013. Could I, was I as kind as I could have been? No chance. No chance. In what way? Selfish, uh, expected the world to owe me a favour. Do you know who I am? Uh, not in a huge way, but in a private, personal way that could make me angry about things that I shouldn't have been angry about. Um, and garden fence looking and what's he doing why's he got that why is she doing that that's, i should be having that that's what i should be having actually um changing that whole round to awesome so pleased for you can i help what can we do uh and that attitude i've found has been um just totally refreshing um from this sort of angry miserable northerner that i was uh, and I didn't understand now why people oh, you're so angry, Greasy, you're such a miserable sod. And people would see you on television and it would be that sort of jazz hands. Yeah, look, look he's fun. And then you go, oh, right, right, who can I be angry with? I'm like, who can I pick a fight with? Uh, and, and now uh, I like to think I'm a much better person, but um, it's, you know, people have to judge me how they find me. Do you feel that there's been a catalyst for that change? Was there one kind of. I think a combination. In combination of things, uh, I mean, certainly, um, what we've been through with Matilda has put a totally different set of contact lenses into my eyes. I see the world through a completely different light now. So less judgmental uh, about things. I think School of Hard Knocks uh, would have opened my eyes to extreme poverty. Uh, in the United Kingdom. When we did it in Glasgow, the average age of death in the area we did it in is 49. Mm. That's like Glasgow. You're thinking, are we in the third world here? No. It's, yeah. And when you say, what well, you're making numbers up, I, I, that's The Economist tells me those stats. Um, so, um, School of Hard Knocks, Matilda, I would say I've been involved in a variety of sorts of... Um, incidents that are ultimately forgettable in terms of content, in terms of discussing it out loud, but personally felt as though uh, you come through them and then just put a different look back on it and go, could have done that so differently. How? By smiling, by smothering people with kindness and uh, having a far more, not cutthroat attitude towards it, but... Are these people bringing happiness and emotional well-being into my family's life? No. Number erased. And uh, it goes back to the wisdom, the extraordinary wisdom in a way of Clive Woodward. He gave us a book. And it, it's on my shelf at home. And it, I, oh, I can't remember what the exact name of the book is, but it was written by an Australian dentist who climbed to the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge 
and was going to jump off and decided I'm not going to jump and he walked back down and he deleted everyone from his contact book because it wasn't uh, it's far long enough ago that it wasn't digital deleted everyone from his contact book deleted every client that he had that remotely brought one eye uh, we call them bringers of doom the the character in uh, Lord of the Rings was called Legolas the doom whisperer just whispering nasty things into the king's ear just constantly bringing energy sappers and this uh, dentist just deleted everyone that brought misery into his life and started again and he's now the most successful dentist on the planet and sold eight squillion books and you thought at the time what's Woody on about here what's actually, it's actually about surrounding yourself with people in whatever walk of life you work in with people who bring happiness and energy and enthusiasm and when I coach or when I teach or when I'm involved in any organisation I go just bring a smile, smile bring a bag full of energy and enthusiasm and you know what wherever that takes us we'll do alright Do you think that that's an inevitable journey that people go on that's perhaps been expedited by Matilda situation by School of Hard Knocks for you because it's interesting we were talking to Daniel Ricardo on this podcast and he said pretty much the same thing that it was a maturity thing for him that he grew into that he realised he had to surround himself by life's radiators not life's drains yeah. and that changes everything but some people don't well aren't lucky enough to get to that point early enough in their life they might only realise it when they're 80 odd what advice would you What's... give to people I mean you know the School of Hard Knocks you don't always end with a successful, happy ending. But that's the reality of life. How do you cope with that and what advice do you give those people? Well, it sort of goes back to some of the strange uh, things that were, were sort of said to us when Freddie passed away. And the vast majority of the strange things that were said to us were sort of almost said by peers or, or people younger or just a fraction older. Nothing daft. I mean, it is... It's just... I don't know many nasty 70-year-olds. It's just when you get there. I think we all eventually begin to understand that if we want to make life a struggle, if you want to be awkward and miserable, then you can be. But we all eventually realise that oh, it's actually a real effort being miserable. <laughs> it's a real it's tough true. being as scrumpy as I was for that length. You know, just... Breathe. <laughs> My go. husband is so grumpy in the mornings. And I yeah. say, we're not going to get that hour back. Can't you yeah. just wake up with a smile oh, on your face? It's him, a new day. Tell him he's a member of Greens' club. <laughs> and one day he can sit with me and we can look at the ducks on the pond and smile. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. And what about School of Hard Knocks? Because anyone who's been living under a rock may, may not know what it's about. But I genuinely feel it's some of the best television I have ever watched. To see the journey that these guys go on, you know, some you pull them up from the brink of suicide. Yeah. A lot of guys really don't feel like they've got anywhere to go in life. And it is the, the most incredible example of sport as a vehicle for social change. Yeah. You know, the real power of sport, something that you're clearly so passionate about because it pulls in your philanthropic tendencies with your passion for sport. And, you, and real lives, you know, these are guys that feel all is lost until they get on that rugby pitch and, and they find a sense of purpose and a sense of being and they've got a sense of entitlement and a right mm. to be where they are. 
Well, that's changed as well over time because when it, that first happened, that goes back to the original naivety of where I was at the time. Can you turn a bunch of unemployed lads into, into a rugby team? The words uh, unemployed, underprivileged didn't sort of didn't compute, didn't tick any box. It was here's a bunch of lads and a term into rugby team. Why aren't they working hard? Uh, why are they being lazy? What do you mean they haven't got a job? Uh, just almost like I'd lived in this bubble mm. and not realizing. Um, how life could turn out for you if you make some uh, some choices at a young age and find yourself in situations that you shouldn't have done and with it the criminal record comes, the homelessness comes, the lack of support comes uh, and this is all, a lot of this is down to things you've made when you didn't have the understanding of what the right things to do were. Um, so that's changed from that's how we started to where I learned about not judging a book by its cover because we get some lads and you just think, oh my God, if I met him in a if I'm if he was walking down the street today, I'd cross the road to avoid him. And then actually you peel it back away and it's bravado and it's front and what's what's the story? Why is he like he is? And then with that, how can we help? And so that's uh, evolved certainly over nine or ten years. Um, to a place where we know we're not changing hundreds of thousands of lives. We might only change 10 to 12 lads' lives um, each year, but we really get to know them, uh, and uh, it makes huge differences um, to life. And, it, and it's it's a programme Scott and I absolutely love, and we come at it from a very different angle uh, initially. Scotty sees the good in absolutely everyone. I'm, I'm go back a bit when we were filming this, and the slightly more cynical Northern, what's he after... He's playing the system. He's making mugs of us, and we then tend to meet much closer to where Scott was. Uh, and yeah, it's great. I mean, the, the shame is, uh, will it ever happen again? Don't know. Um, one of the lads on the last one got himself into real problems, mm. uh, and so the program was delayed in terms of going to air. Um, but um, I, I do, it's another source of great pride that if if another one doesn't happen. Uh, I can look back and I'm speaking at an event for Wilmot Dixon back in the January and uh, they said uh, we've got a lad running a, a £20 million project I think he knows you uh, he knows you from Croydon I went Croydon I don't know Croydon I know Croydon from School of Hard Knocks but surely a kid who yeah Mikey what What, Mikey Mikey Elrington I think his surname was Elrington I just know him as Skinny Mikey uh, and he was an unemployed lad, and he's now building a, a, a twenty million pound uh, construction project, uh, building a sports facility. And I'm going to be on stage with Mikey. Uh, and they went, "Will, do you want to do your? Well, Mikey's got a couple of minutes uh, to speak at the start, and then you've got forty. I went, "No, no, 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 no. You've got that completely wrong. I'm going to do two, and then I'm going to talk to Mikey, and he's going to do forty because I ain't the story here." Um, Mikey's a story about what he's done, how hard he's worked, and where he's got himself to, um, and and that's uh, that's something that um, just rocking up outside a job centre with a smile and a bag full of enthusiasm mm. can take you. I guess the problem is though when when it doesn't go according to plan. I mean, how frustrating is it for you? Because you can only be a facilitator. You can only take them so far. They've got to have a lot of willpower and a lot of energy, like Mikey clearly did, brilliantly so. Um, how much 
time do you kind of think about it? You invest so much of yourself. You see, I think I would always be worried about the guys that might slip through the net. What what do you do about that after the the cameras have gone away at the end of the day? Can you follow up on their stories? There's, Is there any more that you can do for them? Well, there's some who you, you sort of feel like the disappointed uncle. We're always like, oh, he's blown it. Mm. Um, but it comes back to um, giving... Scott and I give everything in terms of emotionally and, and total trust and loyalty. Mm. We'll do whatever it is these lads want if they show total commitment. And I think sometimes um, it must be difficult for these young men because they've just heard no, 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 mm. no. Then they've got this giant Welsh buffoon who looks like Brian Blessed and a lad called Rodney Trotter <laughs> says, if you work hard, you can get a job. And they go, yeah, behave. Mm. They come for a free lunch. And then some of them miss the opportunity because it's bang, it's over in 10 weeks and they've missed it. Um, I know that the charity School of Our Knox is, is doing some great stuff, got some wonderful ambassadors, is now um, sort of non-gender specific, so there's the women's version in the rugby, there's boxing, there's all sorts. It doesn't need to be rugby. And, and uh, my plea to, 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 to all children, really, or whatever situation you find yourself in, is um, it goes, just give it a go, try can be dancing, can be music, community sports, community hubs. Um, there's good people waiting to help out there. And I think that living without asking for help is one of the great stubbornnesses of life that too many of us have. I mean, I guess fear as well may come into it. Not just being stubborn, they might be scared to ask. Because mm. I don't know what the answer's going to be. Because they get no. They yeah. get no and they yeah. get no and they get no. Mm. And there's so many single... Uh, it's very dangerous to get into the socially... The social argument about uh, which way we vote and how much taxes we pay, uh, but uh, it's, you know, it goes back to that previous question that um, in the ang angry world was like, "What do you mean you're raising taxes? Don't!" And now it's like, it's, it, I wouldn't say I've gone left wing, but um, we need to help more. Mm. We need to do more mm. because there's uh, nature, not nurture. There's some kids uh, you, you haven't got a chance. Mm. Yeah, opportunity of birth. Mm. Accident of birth, you know, it counts for a lot, doesn't it? OK, I tend to ask this question right at the beginning, yeah. but actually I'm going to ask it right at the end because it feels to me like there have been so many crossroads in your life and so many defining moments. Yeah. But is there one? Is there one phone call? Is there one person, one mentor? Just one moment where things sort of changed for you and suddenly you saw the light. It was kind of an epiphany, if you like. Uh, mum and dad have been involved my sister's the kindest person on the planet um, my brother had to put up with me and you know dad played for England I played for England he lived in a shadow and he's an absolute ledge and I sometimes took him for granted um, meeting the missus in a crappy nightclub in Leicester in July 1990 uh, there are a bucket full of those um, sliding doors moments Um is there one? I don't know if there is one. Uh, if you were going to ask me uh, who are my greatest bunch of pals outside of family, where did I have the time that uh, um, moulded my character long-term, not the angry will or now will, that whole combination would be my Durham University days, 91 to 94. Um, the first person... Uh, so I, I rang Benny 
um, on September 19th when Freddie had passed away. He was living and working in Singapore. Um, we went home the next night, the doorbell rang, uh, and Benny was at the front door. You know, he just jumped on a plane and just sat in the front room and didn't say anything. I just sat there. Um, so that crowd, uh, and I know we all have stupid nicknames at university, but Sibbo and Benny and Minty and Georgie and, and Calman, those guys, um, because I was a very, at that age, I was straight out of a boys' boarding school, I was a rugby player. Um, Cairo was maybe far more emotionally balanced down the years, but I was so shy, it wasn't that, those were the, the group of men that really defined what I was to become. So uh, was there a moment, probably the day I walked into Hatfield College on October, to whatever it was, in 1991? Brilliant. Well, listen, if you pack as much into the next 45 as you have into the first 45 years of your life, mm. well, it's going to be uh, one heck of a uh, biography to write at the end of it all. Listen, thank you so much um, for your company, Will. It's been great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks, Pete.